Today on 2C Vans. So like in, in the paper you guys all worked on, like what are some of the big concerns? Um, like what are some of the concerns for different species that you guys kind of highlighted? Yeah, so again, remember we're focusing on the U.S. Southeast. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, we really focused on organisms uh, and, and communities and ecosystems relative to here. Uh, there are a lot of estuaries, a lot of shallow estuaries, you know, especially in the, the Gulf Coast. And then um, uh, we've got the Florida Keys, which is a whole nother set. We've got the East Coast of Florida, which tends to be deeper than the Gulf Coast. And then you've got the Carolinas. And all of that is connected with things like the, the Gulf Stream. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can bring stuff up, nutrients, you can bring algae you can bring all kinds of so it's all connected in a way but it's also all very different around yeah. this is a very complex issue and the oh, southeast yeah. is is pretty unique um hello and welcome to two sea fans at moat your podcast for marine science conservation and education here at moat marine laboratory in sarasota florida I'm Haley Rutger. And I am Joe Nicholson. And we are having a wonderful time already with our guest today who is returning to the podcast, Dr. Emily Hall. Hi, Yay. everyone. Ooh. Welcome back. What's this, like third, fourth? Third yeah. Time. Yeah. <laughs> third time. Nice. She's awesome. So we have a couple of things to talk about today. And remind us who you are at Moat, Emily, for anybody who wasn't paying attention. That's Dr. Emily. Dr. Emily Hall. <laughs> I am the manager of the ocean acidification program as well as the manager of the chemical and physical ecology program at Moat Marine Laboratory. Um, and so, yeah. Which that's, means you're that's an ocean <laughs> chemistry nut. Yes. Right? Yeah, I like nut. <laughs> nut is good. Nut, nut is nut. a good one for her. <laughs> yeah. Emily's the best. So, like, we have, you have some really good stuff. Two big things, actually. And most people will be familiar with the first one because they probably have seen it in the news by now. And if they haven't, they're living under a rock. But um, you and your colleague, Jim Coulter, and your team from lots of institutions have been diving in these places called blue holes. Can you remind us what those are? <laughs> blue holes. Yes, they are amazing amazing places. They are basically kind of what they sound like. They're holes out in the ocean, out in the middle of the ocean, in the Gulf of Mexico specifically are the ones that we're looking at. Um, they're old springs or sinkholes that, you know, back when 8,000, 12,000 years ago when the, the Florida shelf was, you know, the Florida was much wider, you yeah. know, and out of the water. Um, but uh, these holes are far enough offshore that they haven't been filled in by storms or anything like that. So just like we have springs and sinkholes on land, we have them offshore as well. They're just under 100 or 150 feet of water, <laughs> seawater. And you're going and you're, you guys, you and Jim are getting a tremendous amount of um, of contact from the news community and everything because you're planning another expedition and it's a deep one. It's a challenging one to visit one of these sites. This right? is a much deeper one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. This one, the rim opens up at about 150, almost 160 feet, depending on which side of the hole you're on. So we're deep. Deep. Yeah, yeah, Very I deep. So deeper than recreational diving limits. Yes. basically, um, which means we have to get extra certifications in order to be able to dive this hole. Uh, we are now officially considered technical divers, which Whee! is great Yay. and fun and wonderful. <laughs> we love it. That must have been a tough one to attain. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of hours underwater. It's a lot of um, 
book learning, you know, understanding the the, the physics and the physiology and all Bernoulli's the law. Yes, yes. <laughs> all that fun stuff. So you know, well into our careers, we continue to keep learning, which is great and wonderful. And that's something I really like about this field is it, it never gets boring. That's no. for sure. And the blue hole stuff has never gotten boring for us to hear about. So if I can try to recall. You've recently been going to another site called AJ Hole, and this is like a, a thing with Moat, with Georgia Tech, with Florida Atlantic University, and with USGS, I think. And you guys have all been Bunch of people. exploring different facets of the Blue Hole and looking at everything from the micro, microbial life to the bigger life around the rim to the Including chemistry. the geology. The geology, mm-hmm. the chemistry, the structure, and, and whether there's groundwater connections with the hole and yeah. and possibly freshwater even. Yep. Is that – so did I did I summarize? That was perfect. <laughs> you can do all of that in my talks for me now. There you go. <laughs> Great. You need somebody to do that because you guys are so busy. <laughs> so – and now you're and just tell us real quick what you expect uh, the dive to green banana, the new site to be like. Oh gosh. Well, um, <laughs> what do I expect? <laughs> you don't know what to expect. Uh, I expect the there's question. gonna be a lot of heavy gear on our backs until we get in the water. That's right. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's it's definitely gonna be different than than AJ, especially for for the team, the the science divers, because it is deeper. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more um, planning that has to go into it a lot more safety precautions for both the guys our volunteer divers that are going to they're going down below 400 feet which is deeper than aj hole was and so they have to be they have to be obviously careful safety first you know make sure that everything's okay and then you know try to get samples for us put a lander down and this is over multiple days of diving so again safety becomes a big issue so we actually have double the the volunteer divers working with us this time so we'll be alternating days so everybody can have a day of rest in between um so basically the stress factors or, or the pucker oh, factors gone way up it's gone way <laughs> up with this just just add a like a 20 30 more feet to a dive and and that can that can change a lot like you yeah. can't task load you have to be very careful so um the scientists are having to be strategic and and figuring out how to ask these volunteers to collect data collect samples for us and stuff but um we're working all together really well and lots of communication um, so trying to make this, you know, as safe and as, but also as awesome and exciting as it can be. So. Absolutely. And this is, yeah, I mean, this is a really cool um, initiative by well, by by you, Jim Coulter here at Moat, and by, you know, all these different scientists and volunteers. It would be impossible without this, like, cool team. And these sites are, you know, documented by divers in some cases, but it takes a lot to, like, scientifically explore them and get to the bottom of what they actually mean for the Gulf of Mexico. So, mm-hmm. and this is, like, been a huge thing at Moat. So I don't know, more power to you because not that many people can can do this. And we don't know, like, for instance, what how much they're contributing nutrients to the Gulf, what they're doing with the carbon chemistry of the Gulf, um, and what they mean to the wildlife of the Gulf. And we've known about these blue holes for, it seems like forever. And I remember, right. you know, Jim doing the first exploratory dives back in the, I think it was the 80s or, or early 90s. 
Yeah, I was just a kid then. A wee kid. <laughs> <laughs> a wee kid. <laughs> but yeah, Jim Jim and his buddies have been, you know, they're great. They are, we wouldn't be where we are today without having all of their knowledge and all their um, experience and, and um, expertise in, in finding these holes and, and, and working with local fishermen and, and other groups to get coordinates for these holes. And, and now we know, thanks to Jim, of these guys have verified more than 20 holes in the Gulf of Mexico. And right now we're only studying two of them in depth. And so for the future, we hope that we can continue to get funding to to look at more of these holes so we can get a bigger picture of those things you're talking about, Haley, like how they really contribute to the Gulf of Mexico, which is a big backyard for us. You know, we care about it. So What what happens in them might affect us. Mm -hmm. And you uh, have an emphasis on the chemistry, especially in these areas. And uh, you've told us before that they're, they tend to be acidified mm-hmm. inside. And so I was going to ask you, because we've got two things to talk about today, and one of them is acidification in the Gulf. So, like, start us off in a blue hole versus the rest of the Gulf Lake. Why would you study <laughs> acidification in these contexts? <laughs> well, one of the things that we've seen, especially, you know, as we've looked at AJ Hole more deeply, is that the as you go into the hole, you're at the rim, and as you go in, the pH drops. Yeah. And it drops pretty dramatically from mm-hmm. above the hole is like about an 8, maybe an 8.1. Um, but as you go into the hole, we've seen it drop down uh, to low 7s and even 6 6s at some point. And, wow. Um, that you know it may sound like small numbers but ph is on the logarithmic scale and so like a it's a power of 10 exactly um change and that's that's huge um and so we're interested to see what is living there um what can withstand those low ph because that's that's what we're predicting for our future ocean with with ocean acidification yeah, everything becoming more acidic yeah. mm-hmm um, but then also what is causing this this change in pH, this this reduced pH in these holes? And will that ultimately, because with this, the high number of holes, like I said, mentioned, um, how might that affect the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, theories as to why? Um, theories, well, I think a lot has to do with our karst uh, geology that the we limestone. have. The limestone. Yeah. So, um the it, in one sense, our karst limestone may buffer against changes in acidification, mm. but but dissolution of the limestone um, may not be enough to bu- it may not be enough to buffer against it. We, and that's a big question and a big question that a lot of scientists are trying to understand. Um, but there's a lot of in limestone, there's a lot of inorganic carbon, which you know contributes to. Um, the carbonate system and without getting too heavy into the <laughs> chemistry we're gonna get there <laughs> yeah you know like we we do see in our groundwater uh reduced ph uh compared to our surface water and stuff huh. so um uh and but not only that not only the geology it could be because of the biology that's down there so microbial breakdown of organic matter can cause reduced ph because of respiration so yeah. when you respire just like humans when we're respiring we're breathing out carbon dioxide kind of thing so yeah. but is um, it the same kind of thing in the freshwater uh, sinkholes and springs that we see the uh, a higher or a lower ph mm-hmm. yeah hmm. so it could also be because of the groundwater it could be because of of microbial it really just depends on the system and and that's another question we have are each of these holes is the same thing happening in each hole or is it completely different does it have to do with the shape of the hole does it have to do with how close or far away from land it is and you know 
God, we could go on forever. <laughs> so many variables. You have so to look many. At. Yeah. And like it, it, it kind of links back to just what we look at in the oceans as a whole because acidification can be stressful for different organisms. Mm-hmm. And so part of the interesting thing for me about blue holes is, is the question of whether our oceans will become a little bit more like them over time because mm-hmm. we have ocean acidification. And we have – because the rest of the oceans aren't like blue holes now, but – are they going to go a little bit in that direction because we're putting all this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and because of other reasons? Well, I'll tell you, if they do, it's going to be quite a desolate ocean. Hmm. But but how much is it going to happen? I think there's right. so that's, many questions. That's that's a big question. Come that's on, big, figure it out, Emily. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and that's me weakly trying to transition <laughs> into asking about something else you're doing with acidification, which is very cool. So... You and a bunch of partners published this paper on, like, ocean acidification in the U.S. southeast. Mm. And it's more complicated than people would think. But can you give us an intro to just why you worked on that? And tell me why I couldn't find it in the airport um, magazine store. Oh, you couldn't? I was trying to find something to read on my flight. and. I, I just couldn't find it. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I'll get you a copy. Don't worry. Oh, thank you. <laughs> if you want our autograph, I'll get all the authors to autograph it. For yes, you. that'd be fantastic. <laughs> it's a lot, though. Yes, please. <laughs> um, so I guess the, the easiest way to start it is uh, the development of the Southeast Coastal and Ocean Acidification Network. Ah. So there are a number of these networks throughout the U.S. So we have the, the, the acronym is SOCAN. Oh, I was waiting for it. SOCAN. <laughs> SOCAN. Everybody's so can you. One. Right. And, and SOCAN focuses on the U.S. Southeast. So Florida, um, around the coast of Florida, all the way up to North Carolina, basically. Yeah. Um, and there are other regional CANs. There's also GCAN, which is the Gulf of Mexico Acidification Network. And there's MERCAN and, and MAYCAN and all these other CANs. Um, but it's really great because it really does create this network of scientists, um, and stakeholders and brings them together to try to basically bring data together in those regions to try to see how they may differ from each of the regions and to also see how it's going to impact or how it may impact stakeholders. And so not just us telling stakeholders what it's going to impact, but asking them, like, what are they seeing and and what can we do to help, um, you know, create an understanding of how it may impact, like, things like shellfish industry partners, which is really important to our economy, especially in the southeast. So you you have people out there whose livelihoods depend on certain species and ocean ecosystems, and those ecosystems are starting to have acidification. And we don't know fully what it means, but we need to know. (laughs) Well, yeah, because we saw some of it with um, uh, the uh, stone crab. Mm-hmm. Correct. And that, and we actually, we referenced the stone crab work in this paper. Uh, great work done by one of our postdocs here mm-hmm. at Moat, Phil Gravenese. And um, we also talk a lot about what's going on in the Florida Keys, because that is considered part of the Southeast. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of emphasis on um, uh, economically and uh, organismally <laughs> how acidification may impact these regions. Um, there are a lot of gaps, though, in the southeast. So, for example, uh, off the coast of South Carolina, 
there's not as much research being done compared to other other areas in the region. And so this this also gives us ideas of, okay, where do we need to, to really start looking and maybe put some monitoring systems in uh, because there's industry there too. There are stakeholders off the coast of South Carolina. It may be different from what's in the Florida Keys. I volunteer to go. Okay. <laughs> volunteers is tribute. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Good We're job. working on it, so. I like that. Yeah. So, so like uh, – I want to back up real quick and just say what can cause acidification because most of us who are aware of ocean issues probably are thinking carbon dioxide from uh, from our cars and, and our industries and climate change in the atmosphere, but it's not just the atmosphere. Correct. Yeah. Now, um, so you know, a lot of people, when you hear about it, you uh, they talk about ocean acidification. And when, we, when you refer to ocean acidification, that generally means open ocean basically mostly impacted by atmospheric CO2 being absorbed into the ocean with some other things happening too. But uh, a lot of the focus of these cans is both ocean and coastal acidification. Um, and, And coastal acidification basically gives us a way to bring in ocean acidification because you do get tides coming in and you do still get atmospheric influence in our like bays and estuaries for example but Mm -hmm. we also have biological acidification which is a part of that so remember i mentioned respiration and microbial breakdown of organic matter Mm -hmm. um eutrophication can impact that by so if you have too many nutrients and too many things start growing whether it's microbial organisms or plankton or whatever eventually that's going to start to get broken down so it's all connected you can get acidic river water coming in, and you can also get acidic upwelling um, from the coast. Like you see that a lot on the west coast of the U.S., like off of California, for example. Hmm. Um, How does that happen? Uh, currents. <laughs> okay. No, <laughs> that's my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> the water moves. That, that, that was a one-word answer. One-word yes. answer. Good job. Good job. Well, that's a whole other conversation. What I'm, what I'm gathering is that some of the sources of acidification are natural, and some of them are, are from humans, and some of them are kind of a mix of the two. Correct. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. the ones that are maybe – some of them are accelerating, and we have a role in that. Yes. Absolutely. big brain. <laughs> no, I'm just summarizing brain. It's <laughs> great. Just trying to keep track here. So we, we have a part to play, and, and SOCAN has a part to play in understanding what's actually going on so that we – we can help people understand and maybe um, safeguard ourselves in some way mm-hmm. if we find ways to do that. So, like in, in the paper you guys all worked on, like what are some of the big concerns? Um, like what are some of the concerns for different species that you guys kind of highlighted? Yeah. So again, remember we're focusing on the U.S. Southeast. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, um, we really focused on organisms uh, and and communities and ecosystems relative to here. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of estuaries, a lot of shallow estuaries, you know, especially in the the Gulf Coast, and then. Um, uh, we've got the Florida Keys, which is a whole nother set. We've got the east coast of Florida, which tends to be deeper than the Gulf Coast. And then you've got the Carolinas. And all of that is connected with things like the, the Gulf Stream. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can bring stuff up, nutrients. You can bring algae. You can bring all kinds. of. So it's all connected in a way, but it's also all very different around here. Yeah. This is a very complex issue. And the oh, southeast is, is pretty unique. Um, uh 
I guess uh, we've looked a lot, at least in the paper, we, we definitely were concerned about things like uh, oysters and clams. Uh, there are uh, hatcheries around in the southeast where stakeholders are concerned because they know that they can have issues from things like Vibrio or red tides. But there are also times that those aren't around and then they see problems with larval development or uh, shell development. And, and that could be because of acidification. But mm-hmm. We haven't been monitoring that yet. So yeah. they're coming to us actually asking, you know, could this be a thing? And so we're, we're really – because they see that that is a thing in the Pacific Northwest and in the Northeast. And, and we don't have the answers. We don't have the answer. We have theories. We have ideas. Um, and, you know, part of our mission with SOCAN is to also work to – like bring scientists together to put in proposals to try to start doing these things, to, to really look in our area and to, and to work one-on-one with these stakeholders and, and managers as well. So – For example, a lot of estuaries have comprehensive management plans. You know, what do we need to look at? And I'll use Sarasota Bay as an example because that's our backyard. But yeah, yeah, they have a comprehensive management plan that, you know, they they come together with a bunch of experts and try to determine what are really important areas within the bay that need to be studied, that need to be fixed, that need to be monitored, Mm -hmm. or, you know, and what's going on really that's doing well. Yeah, Yeah, everything. And so that's one of our goals is to work with those managers because they are also considered stakeholders to really understand what coastal and ocean acidification is and how it may impact those areas and and try to emphasize that it is is an area that we should be looking at, you know, And, and we already are looking at nutrients, we're looking at dissolved oxygen, we're looking at all these other things pretty regularly in estuaries all around the southeast but um, we hope to continue to add this in as as another parameter to really understand how these these bays and estuaries are being impacted wow you, yeah you think about like the management plans that you see or like epa uh, rules that you see and you think about nutrients quite a lot and other things that are measured commonly and you don't see acidification right <laughs> in there but we wish it would be that way I guess. Well, no, and you don't know some of the things that they've implemented could be you know affecting what's mm-hmm. going on absolutely um yeah. and one thing that's implemented that may help you know a lot of bays and estuaries focus on seagrass recovery or mm-hmm. seagrass restoration and yeah. that's that's great a seagrass takes up carbon dioxide and that yeah. that may that you know but that's good to know but what's that doing further down the line right um yeah, I don't know. Might be a buffer. It may help these estuaries against it, but um, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe We're it's cr- it. maybe it's making more manatees. Maybe <laughs> that's good. Is that how manatees that are made? Well. <laughs> Where do baby manatees come from? <laughs> from seagrass. <laughs> <laughs> like from the cabbage patch, the seagrass. Yeah, yeah. cabbage oh, patch no, manatees. No. Well, more, more manatees, more you know. Um, it it could C- be more CO two. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, um, but I mean, and there's like there are areas in SoCan that are a little are ahead of the game. Tampa Bay is doing a great job. One of our authors on here, Kim Yates, who works for USGS, actually has two uh, meters and sensor packages in one in Tampa Bay and one out like 60 miles offshore of Tampa Bay, where she is actually monitoring the carbonate so acidification parameters, and that's online for people to see and uh, we really hope we can add that in other places around the southeast because she's getting amazing data and and she's working with the managers with epa with the tampa bay estuary like all these groups and and it just it's pretty powerful the kind of information she's getting and how that's going to help the community too so so why can't we do that here well wait wait, wait. i want (laughs) to ask her hang on hang on i want to ask her what she's getting because like when people think about how acidified is the ocean they think probably think about ph of the ocean Mm -hmm. right but Mm -hmm. then it's not just 
just that. Like, you can't just measure pH. And this is the part that trips me up when I try Why to... Why can't you just measure... Because there's so many other things. There's... Okay, let me try to remember some of the things that you guys Here care about. Go. There's so P- many things. There's Big pH. Brain. There's pH. Okay, there's... There's alkalinity, which is, I think it's their ability to resist becoming more acidic, sort of. Yeah, there's, that's a good way to say it. Okay. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's different kinds of carbon. There's inorganic. There's organic. And they, I guess, play different roles depending on what kind of carbon compounds they are. There's some that you need to form your, like, hard shells, mm-hmm. like calcite, right? <laughs> wow. Where are you getting this from? I got it from a paper, man. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. They, they summarize See, I couldn't get that. I tried to get it. I couldn't get it. You're going to get an autographed okay. coffee. Don't You're worry. You're going to get an autograph. You'll get there in time. But, but all those things matter. And, I mean, can you give us a few examples of why some of those different things are important and why you need different kinds of measurements? Yeah. Well, di- well, you know, you can go to the basis of like organisms, for example. Different organisms may use different forms of carbon to build shells, skeletons, uh, you know, look at crabs, you know, they molt and they, they, they use certain types of things. And, and, and that makes a difference, but it's not the same everywhere. Yeah. It's different with corals, too, you know. And so and when you look at carbon chemistry, um, you mentioned all these species of carbon, but there, there's carbonate, and then there are different forms. So there's carbonic ac- acid, there's uh, you, you know, bicarbonate. There's like, and, and a lot of those things also affect animals physiologically. Yeah. So if we want to get into deep with that, you know, it's like how their energy is spent to hide from predators or, or to build shells or to grow a new claw or to you know it's create babies the different stuff because yeah. <laughs> when we're talking about like we're talking sometimes about we're worried about animals larvae they don't necessarily have a shell to build but they have stuff they have to do to survive too and mm-hmm. it's it's different stuff and different carbon mm-hmm. i mean carbon's one of the biggest things that makes up different animal all of our animals and so everybody's got a, a well, we, relationship yeah. with it mm-hmm. so oh, i like that we all have a relationship with carbon we do. it's true well, we're all made of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're, we're largely made of carbon and like the different forms that can come in are they make the difference between being able to survive and and not yeah <laughs> so that's that's huge and so we're not just worried about like shellfish we're not just worried about corals we're worried about fish and mm-hmm. we're worried about you know, everything. Because yep. we can see behavioral changes, physiological changes. Um, and there's still a lot more studies to be done. You know, we can't, it, it takes time to really try to understand these things. Uh, you know, in Sarasota Bay, we're just st- starting to touch the surface of what might be going on here with acidification. But, um, so why can't we get those sensors? Um, funding. <laughs> funding. We need funding, I guess, yeah. We need funding. We and need funding? We need yep. somebody to, to pay for these things? <laughs> yep. Anybody yep. out there got any money? Yep. <laughs> if somebody out there wants to, to help us with a global and local problem, that's a, that's a good way to start. Yeah. Because it's... Uh, um, it's it is both a global problem with the CO two that's affecting the oceans worldwide, but then coastal acidification. Maybe there are things we could do on a local level, mm-hmm. you know, to help with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, there are. There are, you know, and I always go back to if we keep our backyards clean. Ah. <laughs> That help. It's not going to solve the problem, but no, it's no. But going it all starts at home. Exactly, it does. Yeah, you it know, does. If, you, if it, you start at your house, and yep. next thing you know, the whole neighborhood's looking good. Yeah. Next thing you know, the whole city's looking good. Yeah. And, and then the bay's and looking the, good. Well, I was. Yeah. I was, <laughs> oh, sorry, you yes, were going to get there. I was getting there. 
sorry. He stole his thunder. I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so not ready. It's going to take me a half hour to get there. Okay. <laughs> so right now, if I am, as, pardon the expression, Joe Schmo, <laughs> and I am just in the airport reading a romance novel or whatever. You can't get that. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know anything about uh, acidification. Uh, is there something easy that I can do in my personal life, or is it really a matter of, okay, instead I need to learn about the science and, and talk to people who are societal decision makers, or is it stuff I can do at home that can help? Uh, Both. Both. Both, absolutely. Everybody can has has some sort of role they can play. Yeah. You know, if, if you're someone who has a great drive and passion to talk to your elected officials or to talk to um, commissioners or, or whoever may be responsible for making decisions in your in your community, um, do that, yeah. you know, to, and talk to the scientists, read the science, understand what's going on, and then help be kind of the liaison between the science and, and the community. Um, but also, like Joe was saying, literally, it all starts at home. Mm-hmm. Um, things like using reusable products, um, that's that's huge. And, and you may think, oh, well, h- why? How's that huge? Well, you know, instead of buying new things so less things have to be produced yeah. less things that pollute have to be produced and and I'll use bottled water just as as an example there there's absolutely a time and a place when you need to buy bottled water you know hurricane comes through and our water system needs to be shut down uh, you're traveling to a place where the water isn't as well cleaned as maybe in your in your neighborhood um, and and other reasons too but um you don't have to. You don't have to depend on that. And those bottles, the amount of energy and the amount of CO2 produced that it takes just to m- create those. When and you then use energy, you're, <laughs> you're producing CO2. Right. Yeah. And then the, the amount of energy it takes for them to be in those big shipping trucks and drive to a place yeah. and then in CO2. a warehouse. And then you go to the store and pick them up and drive them home. Like when you, if you just had a reusable bottle and, and just keep filling it somewhere in your tap or, or a Brita filter, you know, whatever you want. And the, and the I mean, there, there are. That's just a small, easy way. That's yeah. a good stuff. And and it, people yeah. already care about, and they may first understand they need to reduce plastic. Mm-hmm. But harder to understand, but no less important is we want to reduce carbon carbon dioxide production yes. through these processes. So I wanted to bring up, as we get closer to the end of today, I wanted to bring up one or two things that just surprised me that were interesting in this paper. And one of them was that carbon, di- or I'm sorry, acidification can maybe, in some cases, um, change how pesticides act. That yeah. was crazy. Isn't what? it? That's what? Right. <laughs> it's, it something in that paper said, like, ocean is or coastal acidification or something. Smoking, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's connected, man. Yeah. It said something about, like, acidification and low oxygen together, and a pesticide was... Uh, behave differently with an organism or something. Explain yourself. It was more toxic to the organism. So, mm. yeah. Um, and this is this is something that would be right up Rich Pierce who and, and Eileen Maldonado yeah. at Moat uh, who do a lot of work on uh, toxins and yeah. toxicity of things. Pesticides. Toxicants. Toxicants. Is that the right word? Man-made is toxicant. Yeah. Toxicants. She schooled okay. us. She wow. schooled us. I didn't. <laughs> she just schooled me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we've we've seen that changes in pH can actually alter chemical degradation rates. Uh. Um, and so that just goes into your organic chemistry and, and learning how some of these organic pesticides and, and stuff may break down in an environment. And mm. um, pH and dissolved oxygen can actually it can absolutely pay, play a role in that, same with temperature. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there was one study that we referred to in the paper looking at the effect of pesticides.
pesticides on, uh, I believe it was clams and oysters, um, and to see if reduced pH and 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 low dissolved oxygen also plays a role. And and they found that it did. So. Wow. Um, that's that's pretty mind-boggling because that you know that that, that shoves in another variable that we have to be concerned about because um, a lot of pesticides are in use. Um, yeah. You know, you're going to need a huge computer like uh, Big Blue or something like that <laughs> to. Uh, crunch all these numbers no i have a lot of colleagues a lot of people like all these you know all these authors on this paper are all from the southeast who've been working on this for a long time and they're super awesome super smart people um and but that's one of the cool things about this this socan network is we all came together to d- put this together and so mm-hmm. instead of a supercomputer, we just have super brains super coming brains. together big brains like <laughs> alien record <laughs> or just you guys are like the borg you're just all computing together yeah that's right oh. <laughs> that I was, was wondering about that. That. <laughs> that was such a cool reference. I know. <laughs> they are the Borg. Resistance is futile. Oh, Resistance dear. is futile, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. we're not mean. We're good. Okay. No, they're like the positive Borg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the helpful Borg. They sound like they're from Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be, don't be like nationalist here. Come okay, on, so. anybody can be the Borg. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, I have one more thing that I that stuck out to me, which was there's still a lot of unknowns about how acidification, coastal or ocean acidification, could affect our red tide in the Gulf. And mm-hmm. still, sounds like a lot of research that has to be done there because we don't know if there will be a trend, right? Yeah, and there are theories, and you know, and we here focus on Florida red tide, but there are habs all over the place. And other, you know, different species, harmful freshwater, yeah, harmful algal blooms. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, scientists uh, and our acronyms, <laughs> we love them. Yeah. So can, <clears throat> so can. <laughs> um, but I'm actually about to, in a couple of hours, I'll be part of a workshop where we are discussing how to move forward, uh, trying to understand the effects of acidification and HABs, harmful algal blooms, uh-huh. uh, within the U.S. especially. Uh, and I think there's, and Noah's putting Noah. National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association. Administration. Uh, administration. Oh, administration. Oh my God. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. We both said that. Administration. I Oops. That's easy. That's Sorry, awesome. Noah it's not, friends. It's not, it's not NASA. <laughs> we love you, Noah. Yeah. Um, so there, there is a big emphasis t- currently to really start to understand and, and put some energy and some funding towards towards looking at that. So I think within the next year or so, uh, and and scientists at Moat are gonna are gonna be working more towards this. Um, I did a study a number of years back trying to do just a laboratory study with Karenia brevis, which is our species and acidification, and it's not easy to do. It's yeah. it's <laughs> it's a tricky little organism to work with but um but it gave us some preliminary data and so we're hoping to kind of build that um we have some great red tide scientists at moat that we'll be working with and and so we'll see i think that's going to be great to, for the future to that's see what's going on with that so much needed much mm-hmm. needed because we have all of this red tide work going on uh, dealing with mitigation and how it wor- how blooms work in the wild but like oh my, yeah. this is one piece that i'm like okay where's this piece and emily's emily's working on it we're working on it <laughs> and, and <her laughs> emily and friends yep so all yeah, right. She answered all my questions today, Joe. How about you? I'm, I, yeah. Especially where do manatees come from? Uh huh. <laughs> Seagrass. We answered that. Seagrass. It was perfect. 
<laughs> I'm going to write a book. Yeah, you are. You will be able to buy this one, though, in the airport. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Can I see your paper real quick? I'm going to read off a name for people. And okay. I'll, I'll post a link to you. But if you're looking for it, look for Frontiers in Marine Science as the journal. And the title is Acidification in the U.S. Southeast Causes Potential Consequences in the Role of the Southeast, Southeast Ocean and Coastal Acidification Network. Wow. So if you, That sounds like the title to this podcast. Yeah. Very long. The title of the paper should be, <laughs> We Know Stuff About OA, and So Can You. So Can... Oh, 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 mind blown. Yeah, see, <laughs> Haley Big waiting, Brain. Just waiting for the chance to say that. Yeah. That's perfect. I'm going to share that with okay. these guys. Yeah, tell them all about it. Well, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Yeah. As always. Yes. You guys are the best. Oh, you too. Thanks for being here. Yeah, and we will see you all very soon for another episode of 2C Fans at Moat.